In the prologue we saw, John chapter 1 sort of tells us what the story's about. John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Don't miss the the meaning there, right? The, The light of men, meaning the hope for people. In him was life, in people there was death. In him was light, in people there was darkness. The light shines in the darkness, he says in verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's a prologue. I'm going to tell you the story, right? Then in the same chapter, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he said, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Have we seen that in John? You better believe we have, especially in the last few weeks with the crucifixion. They rejected him. His own people did not receive him, but those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By the way, just a couple of weeks ago, he says to his disciples, I'm going to your father and my father because you're a child of God now. You see how it all just kind of fulfills what the prologue has already set up the book to be, from darkness to light, from separated from God to children of God. And it all hinges on that one word, believe, which we'll look at next week. But we see the idea of belief and faith in the story we're going to look at today, because that's the heart of the prologue, the body of work, and the real-life parable of Thomas that we're going to see today, or Doubting Thomas, as you may know him. So let's look at John 20, verses 24 through 29. John 20, 24 through 29 says this. Again, just see this as the last part of the story, okay? Next thing, the story's over. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, maybe your translation says Didymus, which just means twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We didn't look at John last week because we were here with Dr. Park, but two weeks ago, uh, looking at the past two weeks at the moments recorded by John immediately following the resurrection, we've seen that Jesus has been resurrected, right? But he's appeared to individuals and groups of people. He's appeared to John and Mary and then the disciples, which we looked at two weeks ago. In this passage, John singles out one guy. It's Thomas, because Thomas's encounter with the resurrected Christ teaches us something that the other encounters did not. And again, John mentions three of them. He mentions John sort of, uh, even though Jesus is physically absent, he's spiritually present in saying, I believe that there's, there's nothing here, right? So Jesus is clearly resurrected. He appears to Mary Magdalene, and he appears to the disciples in a locked room, miraculously sending them soon on their mission. But what's important with those is that they were seen. Even, Tom, or even as John didn't see Jesus, he saw evidence and said, there's no way that somebody stole this body. Jesus clearly is alive. And Mary saw him with her eyes. The disciples in a locked room saw him with their eyes. But now we see Thomas. Thomas is the guy who wasn't in the room when Jesus appeared to the disciples. And yet, he's the one who was called to believe by faith in what he had not seen. 
which is a parable for us. You see, why, was, why does John include Thomas's story? Because he's writing to you and me. This is why it's a parable. A parable literally means it's a placing beside. What John's doing is placing us, those who are called to believe but have not seen, beside Thomas and saying, you guys are called to be the same. You haven't seen, and yet will you believe? If you're taking notes this morning, I've got a couple of parable principles that we see in this narrative of Thomas. Just a couple of things that I think we should take away. Number one is to utilize God's word as a precious asset. To utilize God's word as a precious asset. You know, Thomas is given a gift in this passage. Again, he wasn't a seer at first, and yet Jesus blesses him by appearing before Thomas in the flesh. He'd already done it, and yet he appears to him and has this resurrection encounter. Thomas is an interesting biblical figure. We call him Doubting Thomas, which I'm just going to be honest with you, I think is really unfair. Doubting Thomas is a pretty unfair title for this guy because, I mean, Thomas is a doubter, yeah, but he's arguably also the most loyal of Jesus' friends. In chapter 11, when Jesus says, hey guys, I know that they tried to just stone me, but I think we need to go back to Jerusalem. And all of his fr best friends say, hey, uh, that's unwise. You're going to die. They're going to stone you, and you're going to be killed. And yet Thomas, is stand Thomas stands up and says, wait a second. If you want to go to Jerusalem, we're going to go with you, and we're going to die with you. It's like doubting Thomas to you? No. That's loyalist Thomas, right? And yet he's been given this name, Doubting Thomas, because of the passage we're looking at today. But I'm going to argue that he's a loyal guy. He's probably not any more of a doubter than Peter or most of the others were. Peter saw the garments just a, a week earlier than the thing that we're going to look at today, and it still didn't click until Jesus appeared to him in the flesh. Jesus appeared to the ten that evening, uh, the, the evening that he was resurrected. Thomas wasn't there, and so would they have doubted too? I think probably so. And so we say Thomas is the doubter. He's known as the doubter because of this passage, but he was sort of dealt an untimely hand, I think, as an example to you and me as a parable. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, that's Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So it just tells you he wasn't in the room, and so he's sort of this outlier example. So the other disciples told him, again, the ones who had been in the room, they said, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, on that same day, that resurrection Sunday, he said, unless I see in his, hand, see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, the side wound where he was pierced, he says, I will never believe. The question is, did, did Thomas doubt? Of course he did. This is by definition a doubt from Thomas. But John doesn't single him out because of the doubt that made him unique, but rather because he wasn't with them when Jesus appeared in the locked room, which again is why he's a parable of us. It's kind of funny to me. Thomas says, uh, the way that I would phrase this would be, I believe you think you saw Jesus. It's kind of the way these is, okay, uh, you guys are, are nuts. I believe you think you saw Jesus. And perhaps Thomas is thinking maybe a ghost or a spirit appeared to them or something along those lines. But clearly he's not, he's not saying, I believe this thing. He's like, you guys are, are crazy together, right? I believe you think that you saw Jesus. Um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to a, a Memphis Grizzlies basketball game by the invitation um, of one of the basketball players. His name was Rudy Gay, and uh, it was back in the early years of Twitter, and I reached out to Rudy Gay on Twitter and sent him a direct message and, and asked him, or I, I didn't even ask him anything. I just was congratulating him on a good game one day, and he was the star player of the team, and he responded to me and said, um, next time you're in Memphis, 
let me know and I got you or something like that, which was his way of saying he was gonna give me tickets. I went up there on a whim, didn't even have the tickets, and his cousin found me in the lobby and said, I'm supposed to give these to you. It's really a crazy story that a college kid would drive to a city he's never been to on a whim of some guy that said something on the internet. So anyway, I got the tickets and uh, I went to my seat. It was me and my buddy Will and um, got to our seats and they were probably 10 or 11 rows up kind of behind the bench area and middle of the game was happening. A play just got in happening. It was on the other end of the floor. We were kind of on this end and um, Rudy Gay was making his way back to the bench and making his way back to the bench. He had his, his jersey kind of untucked in the front and he sort of like was lifting it up to like wipe some sweat off. I remember like, I mean, really vivid in my mind. So he picks it up and sort of was gonna wipe his, some sweat and he looks up and looks right at me, okay? He looks right at me and, and I go like, I'm like. <laughs> like that, just kind of like, what's up man, you know? And he goes, shirt kind of in his hand, he goes, he goes, like that. Now, <clears throat> I got home, and I told my friends about that, and I told Will about that, and then I told Brooke about that. I don't know if we were dating at the time or not, but eventually I told Brooke about that, and she says, I believe you think he waved at you. <laughs> to me, this is kind of in the same realm, and he did wave at me, by the way. I, it's, I'm going to etch it on my tombstone, okay? Uh, but I believe that he did, and because he did, I saw it happen, but she says, I believe you think that happened, because he wasn't, he was just wiping, whatever, anyway. <clears throat> but I think that's sort of what's happening here, is that Thomas believes that they believe, but himself, he is not convinced. I think that you think you saw Jesus. You see, the problem in Thomas is what we see in many others in 1 Corinthians, as well as in Matthew and in John, and this is it. It's not just that he has a disbelieving spirit. It's that this is a cultural thing across the board with most, most Jewish men. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, it's not going to be on the screen, but <clears throat> I'm just summarizing. Paul tells us, he says, Jews demand signs. It means miracles. They want something amazing to happen to prove it. They want you to prove it. Jews demand signs. In Matthew 12.38, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees are kind of trying to get one over on Jesus, and they say to him, we want to see a sign from you. You say that you're all this. Show us a sign of that. Do something amazing and prove it to us. John 4, 48, in addressing an official, Jesus uh, is being asked to heal his son. And Jesus says to the official, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's a common occurrence and a common problem in these people. And I would say it's in us as well. I want to see it to believe it, right? I'm not going to believe it until I see it. You got to see it to believe it. And now we see this in Thomas. Yeah, I believe that you guys think you saw that. But until I see it, I ain't going to believe it. Even still, Jesus, in his all-knowing, all-present sovereignty, takes up the challenge of Thomas to teach him, and I would say John's readers as well, us, something special again one week later. So that happened on that Sunday, that resurrection day. Thomas caught up with them, and they were like, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We saw Jesus. He's like, yeah, right. Verse 26 says, eight days later. So again, eight days later, literally, this is the next Sunday, because they would count the day that they were on. If it was on Sunday, it says eight days later. That means the following Sunday. It's resurrection day again, in other words. Look at the rest of verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples, again on a Sunday, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, does it sound familiar? Jesus came and stood among them and said, does it sound familiar? Peace be with you. It's exactly what happened when we looked at this two weeks ago. Exact same scenario. The disciples are in a locked room. Jesus appears to them and says, peace be with you. 
Should sound familiar. It's a restart of what happened when all the disciples first encountered Jesus. Locked doors out of fear. Jesus miraculously appeared in a locked, uh, appears in a locked room. He says, peace be with you, which again is more than a greeting, but it's a victorious proclamation that is ushered in the era of peace on earth for those who confess Jesus as Lord. But this is where the passage differs from where we were last time. Instead of instructing the group like a week prior, remember when he breathed on them and says, you're going to go on this mission, I'm going to empower you. Instead of talking about all of them and doing this demonstrative thing for all of them, he turns to one man. He turns to Thomas. Look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus calls out Thomas's skepticism from a week prior as he says, come touch the wounds yourself. Come and see. And the implication, by the way, is that Thomas didn't even touch his wounds, but the mere sight of the physical yet clearly divine Jesus was enough for him to be struck with awe and utter this amazing confession that we're going to see in verse 28. We're not going to look there quite yet, but I want to focus in on something before we move forward, <clears throat> and that's that Thomas needed to see the wounds to believe. And he was privileged to be afforded that opportunity. Question. If I were to tell you <clears throat> that I have a golf club in my pocket, how many of you guys would believe me? By show of hands, do you believe me? Anybody? Two people believe me. That's higher than I expected. I just told you I have a golf club in my pocket. Um, you said you believe me. Many of you said that you don't believe me. Um, you were right to believe me. <clears throat> I have a golf club. It's actually a pin. See? But I did have a golf club in my pocket. Now I'm going to ask the question again. How many of you guys believe that I have a, a golf club in my hand? Of course you do. You know why? Because you don't believe me, you know. And those are different. You don't believe. There's nothing to believe in. You see it. Before, you didn't see it. You don't really believe, you, you've seen. And those are two different things. Thomas was no longer called to believe. He was, but not in the same sense. He was seeing, and that's a whole lot different than the belief that Jesus was originally calling him to, and it's different than the belief that you and I are called to. Thomas believed, sure, it's what he says, do not disbelieve, but believe in verse 27. But he didn't really have to believe anymore because he knew. And that's John's point. Hear me say this. John is writing to believers and unbelievers 35 years after this exact occurrence happened, knowing that those who read this gospel wouldn't be given the opportunity that Thomas would. And John's goal then is to write that they too may be able to confess Jesus as Lord and God even without seeing the wounds. That's why in verses 30 and 31 he says, now Jesus and many other things in the presence of the disciples and other groups of people, but I wrote these things down so that you would, what? Believe. You don't get to be in the room. You don't get to be Thomas. Are you going to believe having not seen? You see the parable coming into, into shape, right? I'm writing this stuff down so that it's as if you were seeing the wounds yourself. That's John's goal. Guys, this side of heaven, no one in this room will behold the wounds. This side of heaven, 
no one in this room will place their hands where the nail holes are, where the gash of the spear was. But this book, these scriptures that God has given us, this is the way that we behold the wounds of Jesus. You're not able to be in the room. Believe anyway. That's why we're given this. You see, not seeing shouldn't be an obstacle for your and my belief. In fact, you believe countless things that you've never seen, don't you? Don't you believe countless things you've never seen? History? Do you believe anything ever happened that you've never seen? Of course you do. I wasn't alive during the Civil War, but I can read books and watch documentaries that almost make me smell the gunpowder at Gettysburg, feel the fear and the courage of civilians turned into soldiers, fighting for the freedom of slaves made in the image of God. Was I there? No. How do I know? Because I believe it happened. Because I see the the ripples through time and space of that event that occurred, and people who were willing to write it down and say, other people need to know about this because it really happened. Do you believe it? Of course you do, because it happened. You see, Your absence in history doesn't make that event or any event any less real, but we thank God for those who documented those moments for people like us to be able to experience those things generations later. You believe countless things that you've never seen, and you believe them because of the ripples caused by the moments for generations to come. And John and dozens others wrote down the wonders of our God, so that though you were absent, you could look on with those who saw firsthand. You can surely watch the passion of the Christ, or you can watch the chosen, which can be helpful to add to the senses of sight or other things. But you don't have to, because God himself transmitted to you and I the truth, history, what really happened, that you would believe, even having not seen It's simple, and it's a very simple word of application. Reading your Bible is the only way in this life that you can place your hands in the nail holes and see that our God has conquered the grave. See that peace be with you is more than a uh, greeting. It's a victory cry. And this is the place where we can feel that. If Jesus somehow supernaturally hand wrote you a letter, what would you do? You'd frame it, you'd stare at it every day, you'd cherish it, you'd embrace what a gift it is that the holy God of the universe blessed you with something from his heart. You'd see it as a physical symbol of his love for you, right? If he hand wrote you a letter. Guys, what do you think this is? This is the heart of God on paper. The Spirit of God inspired wrote you a letter. It just doesn't come in the medium that you may expect. So why does this collect dust? I think if we really believed this was from God, it wouldn't. What do you think? I think if we really believed that this is from the hand of God, 
we would cherish it, embrace it, love it, and love the God whom it came from. The second thing that I want us to see this morning, second parable principle, is to commit to the confession. To commit to the confession. We're going to see Thomas say something really amazing next. Really amazing. And I want to really zero in on it. It's this confession of his faith that we're going to see. It's the payoff of the parable. That's all parables have, right? There's this parable where they have uh, this payoff moment where everything kind of clicks and it's like, this is the whole point of the parable, right? And this right here, this confession is the payoff where we are to compare our lives to this story. Look at verses 28 and 29. Again, after Jesus has said, come, put your hands over here, man. Don't disbelieve, believe. Thomas answered him. Look at this, man. My Lord and my God. Thomas just called a man those things. Let that soak in for a second. He just called his buddy my God. Think about that. Think about the weight of that. His friend, his buddy, he just said, you're the Lord of all and you're the God of all. Can there be a greater confession? There can't. A magnificent confession that Thomas displays here. 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believed what? My Lord and my God, as Thomas says. Jesus' statement is not so much a rebuke as it is a statement of fact. Thomas' faith was anchored in sight. Is it faith? Yeah. It's belief? Yeah. But it's really knowing, which is what we talked about a minute ago. It's faith, but it's easy faith. It's faith based on a sign of sorts. See, for the readers, 35 years after the fact, After this happened, when John is writing these things down, writing these things, and people may believe them, and the millions of readers that would come after the original readers, this last statement is directed right between our eyes because Thomas is a real-life parable. And Jesus says, blessed are those. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed means not just happy. He's saying accepted are those. Embraced by God are those that make the same confession that you just did, but do so without beholding my resurrected body. But what makes this confession so special? Oh, it's special. Thomas looks at Jesus in awe and calls him Lord and calls him God. Thomas attributes to a, to a human being divine qualities. Calls him Lord. It doesn't just mean some statement of endearment. To call him Lord means to call him Master. To say, you got authority, Jesus. You have ultimate authority. He then calls him God, which is kind of self-explanatory. You're divine. You are the ultimate authority. You are the divine being, my buddy Jesus. You're who you said you were. As I said earlier, the Gospel of John's structure, I got a slide. Go ahead and throw that up there, Greg. As prologue, a narrative of support, conclusion or the purpose the epilogue and you can write that down if you want to but I just want you to see it with your eyes we've talked about this there's the prologue verses 1 through 18 
the narrative of support, which is the main part of the book. Then the thesis we'll look at next week, verses 30 and 31, where John literally says, this is an English teacher's dream, by the way. This is why I've written this down. It's a thesis. It's the whole purpose of the book. And then we'll look at chapter 21's epilogue. But those first two things are what I want to single out one more time. And this confession of Thomas is the end of the support. It's the end of the narrative, the end of the body, right before the thesis is restated. It's the cherry on top that perfectly returns us to the prologue. And so what I'd like to do in the name of that is turn to the prologue. So go to chapter 1. There's a few verses. Now remember, keep in mind Thomas's confession. I'm just going to show you why it's the perfect confession that perfectly summarizes, brings to fru- fru- fruition the confession. A quick story while we're getting there. I worked with a guy one time. We were in like a call center, and he was doing a sales pitch about cell phone stuff, and he said something about this discount that was going to come to fruition, and he said it's going to come to fruitation, and I could not stop laughing, and I was like cackling behind him. I couldn't let him hear or see me nor the customer, but ever since he did that, I can't stop saying or accidentally starting to say fruitation instead of fruition. It's a curse for me that I bear because I laughed, I guess, but fruition. And we're going to see that Thomas's confession is the fruition of the prologue. Look at verse 1. Now remember, my Lord and my God, Thomas, in the beginning was the Word. It's Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Could that be any clearer? Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You know what that means? He has authority over it because it's his creation. Lord. Right out of the gate. He's Lord. He is God. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He's Lord because he made it, and yet they did not know him. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Who do you say that about if not for God? And then finally, verse 18, which may be my favorite. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. My Lord and my God. Where do you think Thomas got that from? Jesus' ministry. Where do you think John got this prologue from? Jesus' ministry. You see, Thomas's confession is the confession of the contents of this book. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And please hear me say this as we're looking at the parable aspect of this. The reader, you and me, is expected to articulate the same confession. This is what coming to saving faith looks like. My Lord and my God. May we not overcomplicate that. I was listening to a sermon this week by a guy named Paul David Tripp. He didn't say it with these exact words, but I'm going to summarize an idea that was at the core of his message. And it's going to be on the screen behind me. And that is that faith is the collision of desperation and hope of desperation and hope. What does that mean? 
We come to saving faith in Jesus that must start with a confession of our sin before a holy God. If we are sinners before a holy God, do you know what that means? That we will spend eternity apart from him. It's bad news. And so when we come to the Lord in faith, you know what we're really coming to him in? Desperation. We come in abandonment saying, God, I've got nothing. I'm desperately lost without what Jesus has done on my behalf. Desperation. I've got no hope in this life. But salvation occurs, and our faith is anchored in the reality that that desperation, which is horrible news, collides with the hope that in our desperation, Jesus saw you in your helpless and hopeless state and said, come to me. You who are weary, come to me. You who are desperate, I will give you salvation and rest. See, faith is not some vain striving. So we just, well, we hope for whatever. It's the collision of the desperation of the sinner and the hope of the Savior. The collision. And when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that is a collision of desperation and hope. Is that your confession today? Is he master? Is he authority? And I'm going to finish with some application today, so hold on. Is he master? Is he authority? Is the God object of your worship? Your hope in this life is not based on the inevitable ups and downs of your circumstances. Your hope in this life is not how you feel today or tomorrow or the next day or the next day or in 10 years or 20 years. Your hope in this life is not tied to your experience in this life. Any given day, your hope is based on the reality that Jesus sits on the throne and he will never vacate it. Your hope is in the reality that those he calls his own can never be snatched from his hand, not by others and not by ourselves. And every thought, every conversation, every action, every gesture is to be the outflow in your life and my life of the evidence of the reality that we're making a confession, not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. My Lord and my God, Is Jesus master in your marriage? Is Jesus master in how you parent? Is that confession, my Lord and my God, is that reflective in the way that you treat others? The way that you speak to people? Is the confession, my Lord and my God, is that indicative of your browsing history when you look at your social media habits? My Lord and my God doesn't just happen in this room. 
In fact, I would say it's more important that it happens outside of this room. It's easy to make some confession with your mouth in here. It's much harder to make a confession with your heart out there. Some of you will lose the confession on the ride home today. Some of you aren't making the confession in this room today. And if you're really honest with yourselves, Jesus isn't Lord. You are. You're the master. And you've usurped and rebelled against the God who has bought you. The confession, my Lord and my God, is not a worshipful utterance in this room. It's a worshipful life that goes well beyond it. As you work, as you speak, as you're entertained, as you parent, as you love your spouse, as you forgive, as you confess, the list goes on and on and on. Will you confess with your mouth only or with your heart that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is God? And I'd be remiss if I didn't say, when we look at the world around us and see the current events of violence and despair and corruption and wickedness. Guys, we live in a world of desperation. But the gospel is good news because faith is the collision of that desperation with eternal hope. This life ain't it. We long for the next one. Don't just make Thomas's confession with your mouth every Sunday. Make it with your heart, with your actions every moment of every day. And I'll just close with saying this. You may be in this room today and have made that confession, sang the songs, listened to the sermons, day in and day out for years and years and years. But if you're honest with yourself, and when we started today, we talked about stripping away all the fake stuff. But if you're honest today, you've never come to a point in your life where you can say, I've given my life to Jesus. He is Lord and God. You may not be able to say today that that desperation has collided with hope, but instead, you just got desperation. Today can be the day that those two things meet. And as we respond, and just take pause in a moment. Praise team, y'all can go ahead and come on up here. As we take pause, I pray that you will really do business with the Lord. And don't waste these times. Don't waste the moments that Jesus is pulling on you. Surrender all. You know, when I think about seeing and believing, we have that phrase in our culture that says, I'll believe it when I see it. Guys, we don't believe because we see. We never will in this life. In the next we will. But we don't believe it because we see. We flip that on its head, don't we? The only reason in this life that I can say that I see is because I believe. This life is vain and worthless and empty if we do not see by believing, not believe by seeing.